Good morning, Dragot Diaries listeners, and welcome back. You find me, oops, in a bit of a flurry here this morning. I'm just putting the harness on Jackie, my guide dog. Anyway, we're heading out the door because we are going to see Martin Grass. Martin is a fantastic member of the community and knows an enormous amount about the geology of the area of the Mendip Hills because there's about as many lovely things above it as there are under it in the way that we have an extensive cave system here and he's very much a key member of the cave rescue. So forgive me if we um, potter about and oh, I'm just going to close the door now. We're off. Uh, hopefully I've got some questions with me that he'll be able to answer. Can't wait to speak to him. Well, today, Dracot Daris discovers me sitting in yet another gorgeous conservatory in Dracot. And I'm looking out through very, 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 very fuzzy eyesight at a very, very beautiful cottage garden. And I'm lucky enough today to talk to long-time resident, he'll tell us how long he's been here, Martin Grass and his wife, Nicola, who's helping us do a little bit on timings and stuff today. So, Martin, welcome to Dracot Daris. Thank you, Tiggy. And thank you for your hospitality. I've got a very lovely, a rather exotic mango and something tea beside me. Martin, most people will know you in the village. You are a well-known and a much-loved face, as is Nicola, in the village. What people may not know, I think you're retired now, semi-retired, what, you, what, what your job was, if I might ask you, when you were working. Well, I retired this year, which I'd planned to anyway, after 48 years in the travel industry, first as a tour operator and then for the last 30 plus years working for hotels in the Caribbean. So you can imagine that really I'd been retired probably for over a year because nobody was travelling with Covid. So, so what a lovely village of Dracot for you to, to finally be able to relax. But Martin, one of the reasons that we're, that I've come to talk to you today, apart from it's just lovely to gate crash your beautiful house and have a cup of tea with you. Uh, you are chairman, if I'm right, of the Mendip Cave Rescue. Did I get that bit mm, right? That's absolutely correct, yeah. Fantastic. To first of all, give us a little bit of a background, generally about the geology of the Mendips where we live. Well, Draycott, as you said, is, is situated at the foothill of the Mendip Hills. So we're between the, the Mendips and the Levels. And, and, and to answer one of your questions, yeah, I've been here, living here 28 years. Most, the majority of caves in the world are found in limestone. For those of you who, you know, people who can remember their geology at school, Carboniferous limestone's porous and rain is slightly acidic. It finds its way through cracks in the rock. It makes the cracks larger and larger over millennium. They turn into caves and the water that sinks on the top of the hill comes out at the bottom because the bottom of the limestone is sitting on non-porous rocks. Um, around here that tends to be um, old red sandstone. So the water, all the rain falling on the top forms and it forms into holes that are called swallet holes or in America they call them sinkholes and on eastern Mendip for some reason they call them slockers. 
And if you think of a Cornish pasty laying on its side, that's really what the mended hills are. So one end of the Cornish pasty, the limestone finishes um, near Western Supermare, just going out into the channel with, with um, Steep Home. And the other end ends round about Mel's. So it's quite a, a, a long way, but that's the limestone. And most of the caves, the big caves are centered in the middle. So water falling on the top, going into the swallet holes, will then come out of um, what we call resurgences. So the water's resurging. And those resurgences, there are one or two obscure ones actually on the Somerset levels, round here in Draycott. But the big ones, the biggest on, for the Mendips is Cheddar, Cheddar Gorge. The second biggest is Wookie Hole, which is more well known. But there are risings at the Bishop's Palace in Wales. So in the Bishop's Palace is, is a big lake, if you've been there. Yes, I um, have. I did an Andrew's <clears throat> and, show from there. Right. Well, that's St Andrew's well. Water rising there um, is water f- sinking in swallet holes on parts of the Mendips. Well, that's just amazing. I love the Cornish pasty. We've been Cornish. I love the Cornish pasty. That's great. Martin, let's talk a little bit about history here, the background of it. I have done a little research because you, when I first found you, you kindly accepted to do this chat today. I did. I went off to the Wells Museum, which I absolutely recommend anybody. If you've got a spare afternoon, there's a nice cafe there as well. It's on the College Green. It's very near the cathedral. I think it's number eight, actually. But in there, there's a wonderful kind of display about caving and the history of caving. A name seemed, or two names seemed to come up more than any other. The one was um, Edward Bolch, and the other one, also I saw there was a road name after him in Wales, and also uh, I believe it was William Boyd Dawkins. So were they kind of, I know know they were geologists, but were they pioneers of the caving system that we're beginning to talk about today? Yes, they were. Boyd Dawkins, William Boyd Dawkins, was about, I think, 20 years older than Herbert Bolch. Herbert Bolch was born in 1869 in Wells, and he he rose up through the ranks to become the postmaster general of Wells. The family seemed to have money, although I don't think his father was a professional. I think he, he made his money through industry, but they owned various properties in Wells. And Boyd and Bolch started Wells Museum to put the finds he was finding, the archaeological finds in caves. And Bolch is known as the father of Mendip caving. He started off initially very interested in the archaeology. He became a, a pupil of Boyd Dawkins, who, as um, I said, was about 20, I think he's about 20 years older than him. And Boyd Dawkins at the time was very he, he really was an archaeologist. Everything he was he was doing was was looking for signs of ancient man. You have to remember that at this time it was just as Darwin's evolution of course it was Darwin um, it? Yes. came out. So there were various theories. Obviously a lot of people were still following what the Bible said um, of creation and you had people like Dawkins that was trying to prove otherwise. And some of the finds particularly at a place called Bamwell, in a cave there, that was the Bishop of Bath and Wells' summer residence, and that was very much seen as finding these bones of long-dead animals, such as hyena and, and elephant and things. This was used as an example of the Great Flood, because these were animals that didn't get on the ark, 
And so they'd been washed into a cave. But of course, other people were trying to say, no, this is evolution with climate has changed. These animals have become extinct in, in Britain. How interesting. So the sort of Bible story and reality, basically a bit of a crash there. Yeah, it would clash. Yeah. Now, Wookiehole, which we also mentioned earlier, that was fed, wasn't it? The water supply, or rather the paper mill, was supplied. I always get the two muddled up. Was that the River Axe? That's the River Axe. That's the and river. the one coming out of Cheddar is the River Yo. Yo. Yeah. Okay, so going back to Wookiee, there's so many stories that come out of Wookiee. I mean, Wookiee is much more what I would call a watery cave, isn't it? There's those beautiful pools inside. But there are all sorts of things I saw about witches, about hyenas. And also there's a strong connection, I believe. Well, it has to be, doesn't there, between the paper mill and the caves and indeed the litre water that was run from the paper mill into the caves. I'd love to know a little bit more about that. That's right. Well, I mean, Wookie Hole has always been open as a cave, not as necessarily as a show cave. And inside the first chamber, when you get to the first chamber, there's a big green lake, and there's a stalagmite. A stalagmite, if you don't remember, stalactites come down and the mites are, are formed underneath them. That's right. Hold um, on tight and hold on with your might. That's right. Anyway. So the... There is a stalagmite very prominent in that first chamber that looks like a witch's face with a big hooked nose. During the excavations of Herbert Bulge, it was known that people used to live in there because there were big dry chambers, you're safe from animals, you had the water there. And during his, his one of the digs that he did in the cave, he found the bones of uh, a female with her was a bone comb, one or two other artefacts, but also an alabaster ball. Oh. Now... A sort of fortune-telling type thing. Well, this, I think, is where the, you know, the rumours and okay. the myth of the witch of Wookiee comes from. Because, first of all, you had this stalagmite that looked like it. You then found the bones of this woman. The alabaster came from Italy. Now, why would one assume the peasant woman living in the cave... Why would she have what would have been at the time quite an expensive artifact to get hold of, this alabaster ball? And she had one or two other things, as I mentioned earlier, like a comb and, and, and one or two other implements. The other interesting thing that was found with her were the bones of two tethered goats. Oh. Um, Sacrificed, do you think? Well, nobody knew. Okay. There was her skeleton, the goats, and the various objects. And so the myth from there really grew. And as the cave became popular, a tourist attraction, it was bought in the 1900s and developed more. Until then, people were shown around by local guides and it was very much a sort of half-hearted affair. The caves were bought by a, a Captain Hodgkinson and he developed it by putting um, electric lighting and things in. And of course, the witch was a perfect thing to get across. And when you tell children this story, they love it. You know, they think of these poor goats that were tethered. But about 10 years ago, the Natural History Museum in London wanted to carbon date them and they paid for it because it's quite an expensive thing and they radio dated them. And it was found that the female bones were, there was a difference of about 
200 years between them and the goats. Oh, okay. So they were never her goats. Oh, they were never her goats. Um, okay. I kind of makes me feel better because I've got a picture of a witch who's brushing her hair with a comb, casually hmm. sort of then slaughtering her goats. It doesn't make a great picture. I like the fact that they were just kind of there and, and yeah. it's happened. But they're all in the same chamber. They were close to right. one another. So the story. So, um, but, but just going back a bit, though, could you just give us a connection with the... Because those, again, who don't know the area, there's some... Um, there's Wookiee Hill Cave, and very near to it is the paper mill, which is very famous. Yeah. So what's the connection with that, Martin? Because obviously the two are synonymous, aren't they? Well, although cheddar is the larger resurgence, there's more water comes out per second from, from the cheddar rising. Oh, okay. The water coming out of Wookiee, it's yeah. still a lot, a vast amount. There are the lakes, as you said, within yes. the cave. Yes. And it was easy for them to dam up. So there's a dam there they can let in or out, depending on the rainfall. And so they could control the water, and they had the leet, which is basically a, a, a drainage tunnel, not tunnel, or parts of it do go under underground, to feed the paper mill. Because to make paper, you need very clear, pure water. And of course, the water coming out of the caves hadn't been polluted. And so that's how the paper mills started up. And in the 1880s, quite interesting, the water coming out was coming out um, suddenly it was coming out full of lead and lead tailings. And up on the top of the Mendips, um, near Pretty, is the St Cuthbert's Lead Works. And what was happening there was that the people doing it were actually re going through all the spoil heaps that had been left um, because there was a system of extracting more lead. So over the years it had been mined, a lot of it was on the surface, and, and as things got better, they could keep extracting more. And the paper mill had to stop working. And there was a court case. And what was fascinating is that the Swallet put St. Cuthbert's, they put dye in there to prove that it went to Wookiee Hole. And it came out. And that was the first law case in Britain that um, water tracing was used to prove that it was the lead works. And to this day... The court injunction still applies. Wow, that's so you cannot pollute the water up there. That's amazing. It just it isn't it. It's the wonderful kind of connection with today, where we are always, you know, very sensitive about what's going into our waterways. That was kind of one of the. We are, and and the the paper that was made there was very good quality. And I know you mentioned earlier that you have some overseas listeners. Wookie Hole paper mill printed a lot of the Confederate banknotes from the American Civil War. It's extraordinary. Um, Martin, just going back again, I love the thought of what they might be wearing. I mean, I've seen you guys go caving today and you're wearing these very smart sort of uh, dry suits and, and hard hats and, and torches. Now, in those days, what were they wearing? I mean, because they didn't have torches. So how were they... Right, well, know? right up, really, right up until sort of the Second World War, or just after the Second World War, people would wear any old clothes. So, okay. you know, it would be a tweed jacket. Because it's not um, cold in there, it's always a constant. About 40 Fahrenheit yes, year round. Yeah. So they would have um, tweed jackets, woolen shirts, tweed trousers, hobnail boots and flat caps, a vital part of caving equipment because they didn't have hard hats. So a flat cap, they would stuff rolled up newspaper in the flat cap and that's what protected their heads. And how were they seen? <clears throat> well, they would use a candle. Oh, and just a like candle. some of the old miners, they would 
attach, either hold the candle. If they were having to climb a rope or an old rope ladder, they'd often put it in their mouth. And quite often they'd try and stick it with a lump of mud to the front of the, the cap. <laughs> Which is interesting because you, I've never seen any of the old photos of cavers really wearing sort of hard trilby hats. Yeah. But actually that's what a lot of the Cornish miners had. Oh, because on. if you think about it, it's got a hard peak. Yeah. So it's easier to stick it on there. We Cornish people always advance, but you've got, haven't you got a little quote there from... Yes, I have. Um, I have Don't a you... quote. Sorry, <laughs> trying to find it's my like, book now. It's like being a newsreader, yeah, isn't it? It is. Herbert Bolch was very much a believer in the candle. Yeah. And um, this is a, a quote that he made as late as 1937, when he'd yeah. actually finished, he'd stopped caving. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just read this to you. Even in 1937, when other forms of lighting than candles were in general use, Bolch wrote, wrote in his issue of the Mendip Caves, Candles are by common consent the most dependable illuminant, as they cast no treacherous shadows, mm -hmm. though electric torches are a good standby. Cavers in the 60s changed this slightly, if it excludes some of the language. Yeah. Bolch is dependable illuminant. It is a candle bright. It casts no treacherous shadows, for it gives no bloody light. <laughs> well, there we go. Well, I think we're slipping, Martin, into present-day caving with that quote. I mean, there is so much history, isn't there, on Boyd and Bolch? And I would definitely say anybody who had any further interest in the history of it, they really need to go to the Museum in Wales or or indeed, go on Wikipedia and look up the books because they make fascinating reading. But Martin, I need to drag you, if I may, into more current times. And we'll talk a little bit a little bit later about some of the rescues you've been involved in. Some of them have been quite media-focused um, as well. Caving and cave exploration continues endlessly, as I mean, because we will never, will we, fully get to the extent of it. But weren't you involved, I think, was it around 2012 in a, in a new discovery um, near Cheddar Caves? Is that right? Yep, that's right. We were um, digging a cave. We were inside digging a cave. The cave at the time was about 2,000 feet long. And that had been discovered in the 1970s, uh, late 60s, 70s, by Dr. William Stanton, very famous local caver. And we started digging there, and we dug for about four years, so we'd have started about 2008. Um, most of what we were doing, cavers do lots of different things. You're following a draft or what we call scalloping on the walls, which showed where the water had come from. And you can tell by them if they're small, if it was flowing fast, or if they're big scallops, if it was flowing slowly. And it was hands and knees crawling, some of it a little bit flat out. And one day, it suddenly started getting bigger. And it just got bigger and bigger. We entered a very large chamber. And at the top of this chamber, you, there was a slope. And you looked down and there was a 40-foot drop into a, a massive chamber. We, couldn't, we could see one wall. We couldn't see anything else. Even with modern lighting, it didn't penetrate it. And we went back a few weeks late or a week later. We had to wait for some friends to come back who, were, who dug with us regularly to come back from Iceland. They were there on holiday. So we waited for them to come back and we all went down the following week and we found what was now known to be the largest chamber in Great Britain 
underground, natural underground chamber in Great Britain by, by area. It's not the largest by volume. Yeah. I don't want to upset my Yorkshire friends, but yeah, it's the largest, largest by area. And you had no idea it was there? No, none at all. I mean, we dig for caves. It's the only sport where you can dig and possibly find something, and you find something when nobody has ever been. Man has never been. And um, it's interesting when you listen to things, you, you hear of NASA talking about going to Mars where people haven't been. I heard an article by Richard Branson saying that it's the, the depths of the ocean. And they were both talking on the radio about how much, you know, how many millions or trillions it was going to cost to do these explorations. And so I phoned up the BBC after the article and to say, I've just come back from somewhere where only six people have ever been. And it cost about 50p in petrol. So, <laughs> wow. But on that note of being the first first people to, to discover this, how did that feel? I mean, did it, did it feel? Uh, it's exhilarating because you also don't know what's going to be there. So you can't rush around, A, for conservation reasons, because you'll have stalactites, stalagmites, you might have pure crystal floors. But also what you may have, because of the way caves are formed, you could have a boulder the size of a car that's been perched for a few thousand years just just where it's fallen because there's no airflow, there's no climate change, as we said earlier. And you could easily just touch that and it would fall over. And you just don't know yeah. what's going to happen. So caves generally, uh, you know, people always think, oh, is the roof going to fall in? They don't. The roofs, the sides are generally, but boulders and things on the floor. And in this particular chamber, it was the anniversary that year. Uh, we'd started off in as the anniversary of Charles Dickens. Oh. Um, I think it was his death. So we had uh, been naming things after mm -hmm. him. We called it the Frozen Deep because when we got to the top of this first big drop, pitch as we call it, you could see all these crystal f walls that look frozen. And somebody found that he had written some obscure article <laughs> or story before he was even, I think, quite famous, called The Frozen Deep, oh, which is where that name came oh, from. That's why it was named. Uh, Martin, I want to just ask you, I mean, don't, you have a million caving stories, I know, and um, of cave rescues and, and, and everything that you're still very active in, in today. But there was one, and forgive me if we keep it fairly short, because it was a long story, but... I know you didn't go out there, but somebody from Cheddar did. You were very involved in part of the orchestration, particularly of equipment. And uh, if people will cast their minds about how many years ago, how many years ago was it? It was a football team, was it in Thailand, who had gone into, in brackets, a show cave, had got trapped, and there was a massive world pulling together of the rescue. Can you give us a little bit of a background of how, how Mendip Caves were, were involved in that? Okay, that was 2018. Okay, so it's not that long ago, is it? No, it was July, and the UK has probably the best cave divers in the world. Very sadly, they're often called by countries to, to help out to find bodies. And please remember that they're all self-funded, they all have other jobs, or they're retired, so it's very much you know, their hobby. Exactly. It's a volunteer thing. But out of the six divers, seven divers, including the doctor that did the diving, six of them came from the UK. And, and out of that, three are local people, either from Cheddar or Bristol. 
we get we got involved with sending out equipment. I'm also the chairman of the Cave Diving Group, which is which is sort of the UK governing body. It's a very small membership because it's quite a dangerous sport. And so we were involved with both doing some PR from here, but also sending out specialist equipment. So they, they were often sent straight up to Heathrow and put on the next flights. All, past, uh, all customs regulations and things were dropped because the UK government was working very closely with the Thai government. And it was all coordinated, funnily enough, from here by the British Cave Rescue Council, which is the governing body of all the cave rescue teams. So we were quite involved with that, with sending out equipment. And you were talking to the press quite a bit yourself, weren't you? Yeah. I mean, I felt more like a general in the First World War, that I was well behind the lines and safe, but it needed one of the... I was one of the people. There was about half a dozen of us that were doing the press interviews and, and uh, newspaper stuff back from here. So One thing connected to me very strongly as somebody uh, who was watching it on the news, and... The only caving I've done is really very um, minor. I went down Swildens, um, and that was fantastic. So, uh, you know, my knowledge of caving, I want to make absolutely clear, is is minimal. But I think one of the things anybody who thinks about caving always thinks about tight, you know, these sumps. Everybody has a vision of their own loo that people are Mm. having to swim through that pipe. And, of course, anybody who, like myself, has any sort of form of claustrophobia always worries about that. And I remember... The quite shocking thing about those boys is they had to be brought through, I believe, a sort of, a, what, I've got, what I'm calling a sump, and I know you'll quite rightly correct me. Therefore, they had to be, am I right, sedated to actually, so presumably a diver had to go through a tight squeeze to get to them, and then I'm assuming they had to be sedated to get them out. Did I read that wrong, or is that how it worked? No, you, you read that correctly. I mean, first of all, a sump is a flooded cave passage, oh, okay. so it could be big okay. or it could be small. It can be short, it can be long. And the Australian doctor, along with the six UK divers, took the decision that the only way they could do it, because there was nil visibility with the floodwaters, you know, anybody that wasn't used to it could panic and probably would and pull off equipment. And so uh, what we call full face masks, which, which fit over the whole face, so you don't have anything in your mouth, um, was sent out from the UK because each of the cave rescue teams here has them. So the masks were sent out and um, the boys were sedated and each one brought through by the divers. There were some air chambers where the water hadn't flooded to the roof. So they would come up in there and pass the the, the boy on. And um, they're all safe and well. And, and presumably they everybody probably won't even remember that bit. Apparently they don't. Really? No. Gosh, that makes me quite emotional thinking about yeah. it. Martin, on a more humorous note, I've heard along the, on the grapevine, if that's the right word, that you've got involved in politics and caving. Um, is that right? That You've taken some fairly well-known dignitaries, including politicians, caving. Tell us a bit about that. Well, yeah, we have over the years. I think they tend to come to us because we're obviously the rescue team. So, uh, But, yeah, we've we've taken, well... Tessa Munt, who was the Liberal MP for Wells, taken her down Swildens. And now we have James Heapy. Mm-hmm. So I've taken him a couple of times caving because it's best to keep a foot in both camps. Absolutely. They, they both did very well. Yeah. I won't say who got the furthest in the cave or what happened. but, no, but you can um, tell me later. They, yeah, they did very <laughs> well. 
But obviously, it's always best not just to keep him with politicians, but to keep him with the great man himself. Oh, you mean so? God. I do indeed. Oh. So a few years ago, we did take the Bishop of Bath and Wells. Oh, the man himself. We took him. Did yes. he go in his pointy hat and his? his, his... No, no. We gave him equipment. Um, he had actually done quite a bit of caving before. Oh, he was. This a, is he a, was this based is a scoop. at. A, yeah, he was based at a seminary in North Yorkshire. Yeah right in the heart of the caving country. So he had done a bit, but not for many years. Okay. And what was interesting, he turned up with three uh, of his employees. So uh, I think we had a couple of canons, and I think we had a vicar, and I think we might when have we had a virgin. Canons, we, we mean people of the church. Not, yes, not, sorry, sorry. Not with one <laughs> N, yeah. Um, that would be So, yes, so we, we had a complete, we had the complete set there. Yeah, so. yeah. But we did say to him that if we ever had a rescue where we needed the last rites or something, could we call on him? But uh, It would have been really annoying. He's retired he, now. He, yeah, if something had happened, then you go, right, that's yeah. it. You know, I'm with the best people for this. <laughs> yeah, so we do take a, a few different people. Good, good. Well, I, I love that. I love, I have, the, I'm sorry, I have this Monty Python sketch in my head of the, of the bishop and, and his, his sidekicks. <laughs> And it gave him full. Of course, for listeners who are old enough to remember, like you and I, yeah. of course, there was the famous Monty Python sketch of the baby eating Bishop of Bath and Wells. <laughs> at, uh, oh, actually, that was Blackadder. I, Sorry, I, think so. I do apologize. And I think we need there. to say no, be- no babies were <laughs> No, no babies were Not in this instance, anyway. So, Martin Grass, chairman of Mendip Cave Rescue, thank you so much for being a contributor on Draycott Diaries and being so lovely and facilitating and giving me tea and and very very interesting account of caving today thank you my pleasure (laughs) i can't get the image out of my head of the bishop of bath and wells caving it's just brilliant isn't it could only happen in somerset Martin, we are so grateful for your time talking to Dracot Diaris. What a great chat we had. A few other thank yous to my brother Hugh, who arranged the music. My name is Tiggy. And of course, a massive thank you to Rob Elliott for editing this programme. We'll look forward to seeing you in a month's time. (laughs) 